The reading from today is from Psalm 110, which is on page 872 in your Pew Bibles. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the days of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Don't you ever feel like you need a dose of refreshment? We've started thinking about refreshment already in our time together. Do you you feel like you need a dose of refreshment right now, a bit of a pick-me-up, something to motivate you to look up and keep going? And by the time the end of of the year rolls around, refreshment like this is exactly what I need. And in the optimism that surrounds the start of the new year, I pin my hopes for refreshment on January. This year, January is going to deliver. But when I do, year after year, I realise that I'm just kidding myself. I begin January thinking how good it's going to be, how much I'll be able to relax and catch up with people, how much I'm going to get done during this less structured time of year. But year after year, I reach the 20-somethings of January and reality bites. January's nearly gone. I feel like I'm already behind. The refreshment I hoped for has evaporated. And I feel like I need another January if I'm going to keep going through the year. If you feel like that too. (laughs) Well, if you feel anything like I do, then Psalm 110 is a good place for us to be. It's a good place for us to come for refreshment. Um, Because Psalm 110 offers us refreshment that isn't based on what I'm going to do. No, it raises our eyes to see what God has done, what he is doing and what he will do through his king, through his son, Jesus. And so I'm so glad that we get to dig into this psalm and that we can be refreshed by it together today. Um, Just help us get our bearings in the psalms. The book of Psalms is is introduced by Psalms 1 and 2. We looked at Psalm 1 just a few weeks ago. Um, But Psalm 1 and 2 together, uh, they show us a picture of two ways of life. Um, Ultimately, these two ways of life um, are set apart by how each person relates to God how each person relates to God's word and how they relate to God's king. And the rest of the Psalms, they trace a bit of a story flowing from those first two as writers like King David uh, go through life in relationship with God while living in a world that opposes God and opposes his king. Now in the Psalms, there's, there's five movements that make up that story. 
And since the Psalms are songs, you might say that they're organized into five albums. And Psalm 110 comes in the final movement, in the final album, which points towards God's future, God's final rescue of his people. And it's this eager anticipation of God's full and final rescue that David is tapping into as he writes Psalm 110 for us. He reminds us that no matter how bad things look, God will bring about rescue for his people. It will be a full, final and forever rescue. And God's going to do it through his king and his priest. That's the message of this psalm. That's the reality, the future reality presented by this psalm to God's people. And we're going to unpack this message in two parts, tracing its structure, which is going to help us be refreshed by what God shares with us here. We're going to take a look at the rule of God's king and be refreshed by that. And then we're going to look at the permanence of God's priest, and we're going to be refreshed by that, and we'll see how they fit together. And we see the king, God's king, introduced to us in verse 1. Take a look with me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So in this verse, David, the writer of the psalm, he shows us a picture of the heavenly throne room to see the enthronement of God's king. Um, It's important for us to notice who the characters are here. Uh, Looking at verse 1, you'll notice there are two different lords mentioned. Uh, David is is letting us listen in on a declaration by the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. And the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, when you see that in the Bible, when we see that here, we're talking about God's name, the name that he gave to his people Um, in the Old Testament. And this capital L-O-R-D, Lord, is addressing someone else who David also calls my Lord. It's not confusing at all, but that's what's going on. Capital L-O-R-D, Lord, God, and David's talking about my Lord, this other character, this king. Uh, Now, in Israel's leadership hierarchy, there is nobody higher than King David. He is God's anointed and appointed king. But David is the one who's speaking about someone else who's his Lord, but who's different from God. So what's going on here? Well, David is speaking about God's promised future king, a king who David knows will be greater than him, a king who isn't just invited to come into the presence of God, but is appointed by God to sit at his right hand in the position of power, to rule with God. And in this picture, we also hear the Lord's pronouncement, uh, showing us that this is a king who will see his enemies conquered by God. The Lord God says to his king, take a seat, sit back and watch what I'm going to do. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, while a footstool, it's a bit, bit of an image from the lounge, uh, it's, it's actually an image here from, from the battlefield. David reminds us how kings would show their superiority. Um, ancient kings would stand on the necks of their defeated enemies to demonstrate to everyone the completeness of their victory. 
Um, I think we may, may mean something similar when we say a player or a team has wiped the floor with their opponent. And that's what the Lord God says he will do for his king. He will defeat the rivals that stand against his rule and the rule of his king. And so that's the, that's the king's role in relationship with God. Sit and watch God wipe the floor with your enemies. Um, then in verse 2, we see this king's God-given authority, not, to, not just to relax, but also to actively rule. Uh, verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so here is part of the enthronement. We see the king's scepter, the symbol of his ruling authority. And what's significant about the scepter here in verse 2 is the way that it's, it's used, where it comes from. What do we learn about this scepter? Um, the king's authority, this scepter, comes from Zion, comes from God's dwelling place, the centre, the epicentre of God's authority. And it's God himself who extends the scepter from Zion with the command for this king to rule in the midst of his enemies. This tells us something about the, the rule in common here between the Lord God and his king. There's a dependence here on God's authority. There's a dependence here on God's direction that was always meant to be the mark of God-appointed kings. But even David, the king who was described as a man after God's own heart, has failed to rule in complete alignment with God. And the rule of the kings who followed David were consistently compromised by their sinfulness, their selfishness, their being led astray. But the prophecy of this psalm is different. The authority of this king is different. David points to a coming king whose rule is comprehensively dependent on God and directed by God. Unlike every other king of Israel, there's no self-determination here. There's no self-interest here for this king. And this is good news for all his subjects, for his friends and his enemies, because that means he'll be fair and just always. Now, everything that we've seen so far about this king is impressive from his enthronement, from the way that God treats him, from the authority he wields. Um, he looks better than any other ruler or monarch that Israel or the world has ever known. And that impressiveness extends also to his army, to the people that he leads. Uh, look with me at verse 3. Verse 3, your troops will be willing on the, your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Uh, now this week I've been doing some reading about national servicemen. And it's been eye-opening to hear of the ways that, that young men have been encouraged and persuaded and some sense, in some cases conscripted to join the armed forces during the wars of the last century. But when God's king assembles his army for battle, he doesn't need to encourage or persuade or conscript. No, in this verse we see his soldiers will offer themselves up to serve the king willingly, freely, not out of any obligation. They serve him completely. They hold nothing back. So much as their, their reverence for their king. 
And this picture of a willing army is is an impressive endorsement of the kind of king that he is. He's easy to follow. And did you notice the appearance as well of this army? They are arrayed in holy splendor. In other words, they're clothed with holiness. That's their uniform. They're dressed better than the emu feathers in the hats of the Light Horse Brigade, better than that. They look better than the ceremonial whites of the navy. And it's not only their clothing that is vibrant. While it's described with a bit of a strange and difficult picture, we see that the king's army is made up of young men who are refreshed and ready. They're not tired. They don't come to the battle worn out or exhausted, no. They're ready and refreshed. And that's what the army of God's king is like. I think this picture of the army in particular suggests how we might be refreshed by the rule of God's king because it captures something of the response to God's king, of those who see him as he is, who want to serve him. When we see Jesus as he truly is, then our motivation to serve and follow him can't help but grow. As we see his greatness, as we see his glory as God's appointed king, our eagerness to serve him grows as well when we realise the radiant holiness that we've been clothed with by Jesus after he has dealt with our sin on the cross. We receive all the benefits that he deserves for his perfection, for his holiness. And though we might not feel physically young and sprightly like the young men featured here, I think in following Jesus there can be a certain spiritual exuberance as we live with Jesus as our king, as we live with him as the one who directs our lives. I wonder, have you noticed something like this in your fellow Christians, in your brothers and sisters here? How despite their circumstances, some people have a kind of spiritual freshness and eagerness. While their life might change, their confidence in Jesus is constant. Their faith in him is alive and kicking. Now, if you've seen a fellow believer of any age with this kind of spiritual vitality, can I suggest what to do about that? Tell them what you've noticed about them. That'll be an encouragement to them. And then ask them what has helped them to keep going like that. What helps them to stay spiritually refreshed, ready to serve their king day in, day out, year after year. And you never know, that conversation might lead to a last-minute growing in Christ goal for you, as well as being an encouragement to them. And that'd be great. So in these first three verses, we've seen God's king. He's been appointed and given authority by God. His rule is in complete alignment with God's. He assembles a holy army who are completely committed to him, and he'll be given victory by God. And it's with this stage set for battle uh, by the first three verses that we come to the, the final three verses, which show us the result of this king's rule. Uh, Speaking of the Lord God, David says this in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. 
He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. So here in these verses, David looks ahead with confident hope to the time when God's opponents will be finally dealt with. At the time when the kings of the world who've set themselves up in independently of God, uh, when they will face their reckoning. And even though the leaders seem to be particularly singled out here, uh, the nations who have treated God in the same way as their leaders, they're included as well. Um, in language consistent with the rest of the Old Testament and consistent with Jesus' teaching, those who oppose God and his king will face God's judgment. Now, it must be said that these verses contain some very serious and disturbing images. Uh, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers, crushing kings on the day of his wrath. Uh, these are images which describe how awful it is to come under the righteous and fair judgment of God. How dangerous it is to remain an enemy of God and his king. And, and to us, it feels uncomfortable to think of God's justice of his full and final judgment. And we live in a society that says we must be tolerant and inclusive. And God's justice and judgment is so often portrayed by our society as being the opposite, intolerant, exclusive. But the irony is that none of us want to live in a world that is entirely tolerant and inclusive. We especially don't want our society to be like that when we have been wronged. When we're wronged, our instinct is to cry out for justice, to seek resolution or restitution, to seek it wherever it might be found, however long it might take, whatever the cost might be to set things right. And there is something very right about that instinct, about our desire for justice. As people in our world are oppressed and silenced and mistreated, our world also longs for justice. But what about when God is the one who's been wronged? Just think about it for a moment, the extent that God has been wronged by humanity, mistreated by humanity, by people like us. And that wrongdoing and rebellion, that sin, is being replicated person after person generation after generation, century on century, from Adam and Eve until now. I wonder, do we long for God's justice as much as we long for our own? We know we need God to bring an end to the evil done by our fellow human beings. But as loud as our cry for personal and global justice might be, we can't even begin to imagine how much God needs to bring justice for his own sake to satisfy the way that sinful humanity has treated him and his king. So in this psalm, in this song, is the promise that God's justice is coming. One day, through his king, justice will be done. And on that day, those who've rejected God, those who've committed great evil against God, against their fellow human beings, they will face the consequences they deserve. And we can praise God with fear and trembling for bringing that about through his king. Now, you might have noticed that we've missed out verse 4 
the central verse of this whole psalm. Um, And this verse is the one that introduces us to uh, God's priest. Uh, It shifts us away from the role of God's king and introduces us to this this new role. Now, to understand the force of this verse, the significance of this verse, we have to understand what a priest was. If you were an Israelite, the priest would be the only person who stood between you and the judgment of God. And in his role, the priest made sacrifices to God on your behalf to satisfy God's rightful wrath against your sin. And this was so serious that when you were going about your business on the day of sacrifice, you were desperately hoping that the priest did it right, that he was doing his job properly, or you were in trouble. Then we read verse 4, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This verse in the middle of this psalm tells us that God's king will also be a priest. Now you can imagine an Israelite singing this psalm and doing a bit of a double take because every Israelite knows that you can't be both. You can't be a king and a priest. They don't fit together. Uh, My daughter Annie loves puzzles at the moment. She's gotten pretty good at those wooden ones with the pegs in the top and you you can only fit one piece in in the right hole. Um, But I've noticed that when I'm watching her, she puts the pieces in places where they won't fit just to see if I'm paying attention. And in the same way, the Israelites singing this song, this psalm, they must have looked at each other wondering what David was up to, trying to put these things together that don't go together. A priest must come from the tribe of Levi. A king must come from the tribe of Judah. A priest, there might be some overlap. A priest might do some kingly things. A king might do some priestly things, but you can't be both. But then we hit the name of Melchizedek. And in Melchizedek, what was impossible is opened up as a possibility. Uh, We meet Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, way, way back at the start of Israel's history. Um, Between God's promise to Abraham and the birth of Isaac is Melchizedek. Um, He only appears for three verses. But in those verses, he meets Abraham and blesses him for his military conquest And Melchizedek's described in these verses as as the king of a place called Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem. And as well as being king, king of Salem, uh, he's also called a priest of God most high. This is before Israel had kings. This is before Israel was um, was, was just two people at that point. And it's before the priestly system was set up. And we have this guy, Melchizedek. And so in this psalm, David prophesies that, like Melchizedek, God's future king will be both the ultimate conqueror and the everlasting priest. And this is possible because of Melchizedek. But what does this joining of king and priest mean for us? Well, we begin to see an answer as we look at when this appointment of God's priests happens in the psalm. In the psalm, we started with the king's army being prepared for battle, and then we ended with the king's final victory. In verse 3, weapons of war locked and loaded. Verse 5, 
They're fired and God's enemies fall. But in the middle, in verse 4, there is hope for humanity. In that moment, there is a last chance for the nations, a last chance for the enemies of God who've been living in rebellion against him. In that moment, they will be able to turn to the God-appointed priest king to have their sins dealt with and to avoid the just punishment they deserve. How gracious is our God that he has not yet treated us as our sins deserve. How patient is our God that his full and final judgment has not yet fallen on us, though it could rightly have. And how kind and merciful is our God that in this moment before full and final judgment, he holds out through his priest king the offer of rescue for his enemies. He holds that out to people like us. Now, the words of this psalm were written and sung for centuries before Jesus was born. But as we come to the New Testament, we're left in no doubt that he is the one who fulfills what we have read here. On 25 occasions, the New Testament writers quote parts of this psalm to show us that Jesus is the one it refers to. Jesus is this priest, this king, who offers hope for humanity. When we see Jesus' fulfilment of this psalm, we can see that we live in the time which is is hinted at in this psalm uh, by the word until in verse 1. We're still in that time. We're in the time between the troop gathering and the final judgment, the time when the exalted King Jesus can be turned to as priest, bringing people into restored relationship with the Lord God. As the writer of Hebrews uh, puts it in in chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' fulfilment of this prophecy offers such immense refreshment for those who turn to him, those who receive salvation through his priestly work. Um, Hebrews 7 highlights just some of the reasons for refreshment as we see what Jesus has done as priest. Uh, The writer tells us that because Jesus is our priest king, we can be refreshed in the knowledge that God will hear us. Jesus, our priest who intercedes for us, is also the king who is at God's right hand. How good is that? And we can be refreshed by the permanence of Jesus' priesthood. He doesn't die like other priests. He doesn't stop or rest or retire from his role. There's no moment when Jesus is off duty, when our prayers pile up, when our rescue is put at risk. No, because he is a priest forever. Jesus is always presenting our prayers to God. He's always securing salvation with God through his sacrifice for us. And we can be refreshed as well by Jesus' perfection. If we doubted that Jesus was perfect for a second, we just need to look to where he is right now, exalted by God to his right hand as king. And because Jesus is perfect, his priestly sacrifice of himself on the cross is also perfect. It doesn't need to be repeated. There's never a question about its effectiveness, about whether it's dealt with our sin. It was one and done. Now, as we wrap up our time in this psalm, I still wish for another January. 
as I see it slipping away. I still wish for a few more hours in the day and for time to get organised and catch up with people. Maybe you do too. But as we've looked at this psalm, we see the reality of our world. We see the reality of where things are headed because God has appointed his king. He has given us his priest. I hope that that refreshes us in in ways that another January won't. And I hope that as we're refreshed by these words, by these truths today, by the knowledge of Jesus and who he is, what he's done, what he will do, I hope that that will help us throughout this year. And I hope that what uh, he's fulfilled and what we can be sure of because of Jesus uh, will help us to also be part of his work in the world right now. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your priest, your king, to bring about an end to evil and to offer us the chance of rescue. As we grasp this good news today, please enable us to be truly refreshed, that we might be willing servants of Jesus, making his rescue known to others until he returns. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.